0: You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal
1: at scale. Learn more at intercom.com.
2: Welcome to another edition of the Inside Intercom podcast, a show all about learning how to build better products and businesses through conversation. This week, we're fortunate to be joined by a guest who's helped build great product at companies of all sizes, Maria Judice. Maria is the VP of Experience Design at Autodesk, a maker of software for makers themselves. Architects, engineers, industrial designers, all are users of their more than 140 products. Maria's challenge, one she embarked on a year and a half ago following her run as product design director at Facebook, is to make sure each of these products provide a consistent experience that puts users first. Going back a little bit, Maria founded the influential experience design firm Hot Studio. She's written a slew of books on design, and her latest, co-authored with Christopher Ireland, is Rise of the DEO, Leadership by Design. In my chat with Maria, we cover what it means to be an experience-centered company.
0: Traditionally, companies would really think about what their business drivers are or what the technology can do and back into how to serve that customer. It's the opposite with experience-driven company. You start with people.
2: Why research isn't simply a single checklist item.
0: It's not like you carve out research and say, now we're going to do research. Research should be a continuous input that is on top of a development cycle
2: and the skills product builders will need to develop to succeed in the future.
0: Social intelligence is a big one because nothing is done in isolation anymore. We're increasingly a global society. We have to have empathy across borders and social intelligence really is a driver for connection.
2: If you enjoy this episode or other Inside Intercom interviews we published this year, we'd love to hear from you how we can make the show even better in 2017. If you have 10 minutes to spare, Please hop online and fill out our survey at bit.ly forward slash intercom survey. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash intercom survey. Your feedback will help us give you the best show possible. And now, let's hop in the studio with Maria Judice. Maria, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Adam. I'm so happy to be here.
2: To get started, you've been working in design for, I won't put a, a number on it, you can a do that if you'd years. like. <laughs> a
0: zillion years. A zillion years.
2: You've done a lot. I mean, you worked in print design, you started an mm-hmm. agency, you sold that agency in a um, director of product role at Facebook. But what you're doing now at Autodesk is is pretty unique. So if you could just summarize for me what it is you're doing now and um, what unique challenges led you to joining such a large global company. I think you guys have more than like 140 products.
0: Yes, now my my current incarnation is I'm a vice president of experience design at Autodesk. And one of the reasons why I was really attracted to this this role, I've been in the role for about a year and a half, is first, Autodesk is a great company. They were actually clients of mine back in the days when I was leading Hot Studio. And also, uh, Carl Bass, the CEO, is featured in my book as a DEO. So I, I had a lot of affectionate affiliations for Autodesk as a company, and um, Autodesk, like so many companies that have sort of preceded the internet, grew up in a time when um, they were born in, they were born as technology companies. Um, we, you know Autodesk is thirty four years old, and it got its fame and fortune from AutoCAD, and from AutoCAD it kind of grew to support you know. Architects, engineers, construction people, makers, industrial designers, and all of those are manifest in the suite of products. But the company's rooted in technology as sort of technology's king. And back in the days when I was um, prior to the Internet, prior to baby boomers, no, prior to millennials, we were just so happy when technology worked. We were grateful. You're not as old as me, but I remember the days – With Photoshop, Photoshop 1.0, you would um, rotate an object and then go to sleep. And then you'd wake up and the object would finish rotating. And we were happy. That was like a miracle. Uh, But those days don't exist anymore. We have whole, whole generations of people who not only they don't want to think about technology, they expect it to work. And it's more about driving a better experience. And that becomes... Uh, that becomes a competitive differentiator, and it also um, help. And, and it also will drive the market. So Autodesk has to grow up like so many companies from being technology centered to becoming experience centered, and that is an awesome problem to try to solve.
2: Yeah. So I mean, your your mission when you came aboard, I think you said it just over a year and a half ago now, was was to reframe that and create this experience centered company. So, I mean, that must required one hell of a culture change. Um, yes. What, I mean, to you, what are the tenets of a healthy experience center design culture?
0: Ooh, that's a good question. Well, first of all, for any change is really hard. People hate change. The conditions for Autodesk was that the company was ripe for change. So, moving from technology experience center, the first thing is admitting that you need to do that. That makes that's half the battle. If a company knows that they are rooted as a technology company and they realize that they have to modernize and become an experience-driven company, the realization that you have to do it is sort of the first move. Mm -hmm. So I think the healthy tenants for a company that is experience-centered is, A, the culture – first of all, they're insane advocates for their customers, that they know who their customers are, that they believe in research to drive insights – that they're making decisions, business decisions and technology decisions based on what customers need, want, and desire. So, you know, traditionally, companies would really think about what their business drivers are or what the technology can do and back into how to serve that customer. It's the opposite with experience-driven company. You start with people. So that's the first driver of a healthy company. The other one is getting out of silos and start thinking of systems. So a lot of traditional companies are very much organized through silos, and you live and die by the org that you're in. And... Oftentimes, whether or not you may not be working in the best interest of the customer because you're actually working in the best interest of your organization. Right. Or you're not really seeing the seams of your organization. You don't see that those seams, in fact, get exposed to customers.
2: Well, a lot of times, too, you might be passing those silos along your customers and that when they see an inconsistent experience, it's probably because there was a handoff from one team to another that should have been collaborating.
0: So a, a very healthy company is actually thinking about their company as a series of systems and connections. So a large part of my job is to work across the company and unify and simplify those connections on behalf of our customers.
2: And what were the, you've hinted at these a little bit, but what were the patterns or root causes you identified at Autodesk that were were blocking this? Because I'm sure they're not unique to Autodesk, right?
0: Not unique at all. So when I joined Autodesk, my boss was like, so how are you gonna start? What are you gonna work on? I'm like, I don't know. And I said, well, one thing that I have been trained to do, and this is in my book, is that you treat every problem like a design problem. Any business problem can be a design problem. So you follow a design process. So the very first thing that I did was I went on a listening tour, and I I, I said, give me three months. And I basically there were there are eight thousand employees at Autodesk. And I said, you know what, I'm going to try to listen to every single employee. Now, not possible, but I did manage to listen to hundreds of people. And it was all the way from the CEO down to interns. So you don't go for the organizational hierarchy. You cut across the organization. And you talk to people. I asked them a, a few questions. I said, what keeps you up at night in your job? What's preventing you from doing a good job? What are your hopes and dreams? And how I can help essentially. How can I be of of help? And so from that, I collected the symptoms. Big one is silos. In every company, there are organizational silos that get in the way of innovation. Another is mindset about design in and of itself. Like, I think a lot of companies don't understand that design is a verb, not a noun, that design is not like a thing that a few people do after the fact. It's part of the process. Right.
2: It's not an outcome.
0: It's not an outcome, and that, in fact, everybody's responsible for it. The Agile process, I'm sure a lot of people could relate to this, that Agile becomes this magic word that means many different things depending on who you're talking to. So inconsistent Agile processes, a lack of unified understanding of who their customer is. So every org has their customers, and they think they're so special. So they have special use cases for their special customers. So then you have this real complex understanding of actually who we're trying to serve. So those are just a few of the symptoms that I uncovered along the way.
2: And as you said, this is a company with 8,000 employees. I mean, you're traveling all Lovely. around the world to do this, not just from one floor to the other in a tower in San Francisco. Yes, um, I think it's fair to say most of our listeners are from smaller companies, as yes. most companies, quite frankly, are, are smaller. Um, so it's a little bit of an understatement. But I mean, thinking to those that are more in the in the earlier stages uh-huh. of their company's developments, yeah. what can they do to to ke- ahead of time to keep those yep. blockers from emerging? Just
0: to set context, I ran a company for 15 years, which started with one employee and grew to 100. So I completely understand the pain points when you're one person, 10 people, 25, 35, and 50 and then 75 and above. And each size has a very different um, set of problems, but they're probably consistent growing pains that cut across. I think um, building a strong culture is something that is relevant no matter what size you are. You know, I always say that culture is, if you think of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Mm -hmm. um, where you put culture on the bottom and quality at the top. You can't really talk about shipping quality work until you actually have a culture where people feel that you're listening to them, that they feel heard, that they feel appreciated, that they are part of the solution, that you're, you know, motivating them to do their best work. All of that stuff happens at the very, very bottom. And that is true whether you're 10, 25, 50. And I would argue as you get bigger you have to pay attention. It's easy to lose sight of culture.
2: Yeah. And I, as, as you get bigger, too, I mean, there's more and more layers of the actual business that you have to permeate through. So, I mean, how can design leaders show the value of change to to those people that are less familiar with that uh, mindset that they're approaching problems with?
0: Yeah. So how do you justify investing in change? And that's a hard one, right? Because for me, Autodesk acknowledged that they needed to change, and I came in as a change agent. So in a lot of ways, a lot of the heavy lifting was done for me already. But for people who are inside a company and want to be change agents, there's many different ways you can do that. One of the things I offer people is I I say, find your tribe. Who are the people in the company that are like-minded? Who are the people you can kind of unionize to conduct a movement or a revolution? There's this great video clip that I saw at a TED conference, but you can look it up on Google, But how to start a movement. And it talks about the lone nut. And it's not really the lone nut that creates the revolution. It's actually the first person that believes in the lone nut. And then the first follower actually becomes the change agent. And then people follow the follower. And that's how you kind of build a momentum to drive sort of a wellspring change. So that's like a bottom-up approach to change. The top-line approach to change is ultimately getting to quality and customers. If you're going to have a better culture, if you need to invest in design, what are those levers that are going to improve customers' experiences and how do you measure that? And how do you show customer pain? I often say for customers, I think everybody in their company should do a customer tour of duty, every single person. There are people at Autodesk, and like other companies, where you're working on product and you're actually not even using the product that you're actually designing.
2: And this is everyone, like engineering, Engineering, marketing, business. Yeah,
0: and then the other thing is listen in on customer complaint calls. You want to have change to happen? Have your CEO listen in on a customer complaint call. Have your middle managers listen in on angry customers. The other thing is have your middle managers who are usually the troublemakers have them actually walk through a customer scenario themselves. So those are the ways you can enact change is if you can map it to revenue and customer happiness.
2: And what about getting those people to actually participate in research too? Is that one of those methods?
0: Well, I think that's what I'm saying is like, I think you want to mandate customer tours of duty. Every single person in the company should devote a percentage of their time being exposed to customers in some capacity. So that could be ethnographic research, that could be trolling the forums, that could be listening to customer complaint calls, that can be qualitative studies. But I think that it should be part of every person's job to be exposed to customers. When I was working in the ancient days, one of my clients, this was like early 90s, like early days of the internet, 95, 96, 97, Schwab was one of my clients. And one of the things I thought was brilliant was that the VPs at Schwab had to do customer calls. They had to actually, you know, do support on behalf of customers. And I thought that that was the most amazing idea because talk about instant empathy. Right. So those are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, so when I talk about research, it's really exposure to customers. Mm
2: -hmm. And that's probably much more difficult to do at a company your size than, say, an early-stage startup, that's that's a given, I mean, the, right An
0: early-stage, uh, yeah, and bring your entire team on customer calls. Like, don't relegate it to the designer or the PM or a sales channel. The development team, the PM team, the design team, they should all go and participate in research together because when you actually delegate a person to go do research, then the burden, they see it. And then it's their job to express what they saw to stakeholders. You lose time. You lose uh, lost in translation. If you send a whole team out for a day and do ethnographic studies, then they come back with shorthand. You don't even have to do a report. You'd be like, what was the big insight? What was the thing that we saw? Can we agree that we have to fix that? It makes the process move so much more efficiently. It
2: makes it much more anecdotable than, you know, here's, here's some slides to go through and hopefully it informs your, your product decisions.
0: Yeah. And when I was in the early days of Hot Studio or when clients didn't believe in research, they didn't believe in paying for it, we would do like a real research and I would send people out. You know, like one of my clients was SF MoMA. I had the entire development team hang out in the lobby and ask people questions You know, you know, and they came back and they had that insight that really drove sort of the product decisions on behalf of us at MoMA.
2: I'm glad you mentioned that because I had actually had down to ask you about that. That story as a lead for the fact that, um, again, like with a lot of our listeners being from the early stage, I mean, everyone knows the importance of research, but resources can often be scarce. So like what sort of low friction ways can they do research?
0: Total guerrilla research. Surveys only get you, uh, you have to do a combination of quant and qual. Quantitative studies like surveys, looking at, you know, analytics, those kinds of things. And you have to use qualitative studies. Because if you just solely go by analytics, which a lot of people do because it's easy, it tells you the what, but it doesn't tell you the why quantitative studies don't allow you to ask follow-up questions qualitative gives you the richness of the why but it may not give you the justification based on numbers alone so you have to have a combination and there are a ton of methods that you can do that are very quick and dirty that will get you results and and it's not like you carve out research and say now we're going to do research research should be a continuous input that is on top of a development cycle So it's not, the other argument you hear is, oh, research just slows down our development team. No, not when you have a research plan from beginning to end. And, you know, when you're actually doing Agile and you're doing sprints, it never really ends anyway. But you use research as a a top line sort of checks and balances. And it's not just about validation. That's the other thing that a lot of teams do is the perspective of put it out there in the wild, get people to use it, learn from it. And change it. That's great in theory and it works many parts of the time, but the downside of that is you're actually potentially putting out really bad product experiences and you are taking a debt, a hit on trust. Mm-hmm. And it takes a lot longer to build back trust than it is to actually invest in making sure that you've tested something before it gets put out there that doesn't hit the trust threshold. So there's all of those kinds of things that are wrapped up.
2: Yeah, it really seems to me like you're balancing two pretty important factors here. One is that obviously there's only one chance at a first impression, whether that's one chance something that you're writing and publishing, whether it's a product you're putting in the wild, something that you're shipping, mm-hmm. uh, a marketing asset. There's, there's only one chance at a first impression. But at yep. the same time, shipping is only the beginning of the process.
0: Yes, and I'll tell you a story. It's interesting. So I, you know, worked at Facebook prior to working at Autodesk. And I learned so much at Facebook. But one of the things that was pretty amazing at Facebook was, I mean, designing at scale. I learned that one little thing that you change could have huge ramifications. And, and Facebook's uh, context hit millions of people at the same time. And the, Facebook is a master at, like, working, having small teams, highly effective small teams working and putting things out very quickly. And they constantly put things out. You you know, Facebook is different every second. Um, And not everybody gets to see the same experience. There's little nuances along the way. So Facebook's great at, we have this idea, let's test it. And (laughs) I I always remember, oh, let's test it to, I don't know, 1% of the population for Facebook. 1% when I was there was, like, the country of New Zealand. So New Zealand gets, like, the latest and greatest Facebook experiments. But they get to use that, and they get to learn from that sample set, which is only 1%, but it's the country of New Zealand. And then they have a rollout strategy. They test, they iterate, they evolve. And then when they have high confidence, they'll go from, like, 1% to 5%, they'll roll out to more people, iterate and learn. So at Autodesk, when I started, you know, the same philosophy. Oh, we're going to put stuff out in the wild and test it. I'm like, fantastic. What percentage of your user base are you, um, you know, testing? Oh, all. I said that's not testing. That's releasing. It's releasing. <laughs> so you you have to know the difference between testing and releasing.
2: Right. You're gonna. You're gonna. What you're gonna learn is it's too late to fix. At that point.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. And then you've built the debt. Right. And it's big companies, small companies, they all grapple with the value of research. And the other lever I pull is, well, if you're not going to invest in hiring a researcher or researchers, that means that you're having your developers and your designers doing the research activities, which then slows you down because you have one person who has to stop and do what they're doing, do the research, start up and design or build, where if you had a researcher it'll make the process move a lot more efficiently because the researcher gets to work concurrently with the other uh, disciplines.
2: Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect.
1: I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but For every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise. Old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's
2: all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Maria, I've heard you say elsewhere that unlike physical products, uh, emotion still isn't considered as much as it should be in digital product design. I think Facebook is a great example of someone that does consider this. Mm-hmm. So who else is doing this well and, and what can we learn from those folks? I think you mentioned ride sharing apps as an example. I mean, yep. we know that the, the cars on the map may not be accurate, but yes. you get these little moments of delight from, oh, he actually made the right turn this time.
0: Exactly. It's so funny because, you know, I think something came out about Uber, like when you actually launch the app and they show the cars in the ecosystem, that's not really an accurate depiction, but you don't care. You just like seeing cars on the road. And then that like, delightful experience of ordering a car and then watching the car pull up, it's not necessary, but it creates this level of delight that I think propelled Uber into sort of the stratosphere of good user experience. And now you have all of these other ride-share applications doing exactly the same thing. So they kind of set the bar. They added that level of delight. Uh, I also think Airbnb pays a lot of attention to delight, both from their product experiences for hosts and the people who are, what do you call the non-hosts, the people who… Guests. The guests. Guests and hosts. And, you know, the founders of Airbnb were designers, so it totally makes sense. They They came from RISD. So that level of emotion is really important and not to be discounted. And as I mentioned, I mean there's a lot of studies that talk about how when you add that level of emotion and craft to an experience, first of all it improves trust, but customers actually feel like the product works better. They they feel like when something's well crafted or it adds a level of emotion, they not only trust the product, but they actually think that the product functions and works better. They, they
2: see progress, right? I mean, ultimately, it's helping them progress in whatever it is, job they're trying to complete, action, whatever that might be. There's
0: this uh, thing that happens with em- your emotions that it suddenly becomes, I trust this product, and also it increases sales. And it, acquisition goes uh, a lot quicker. And it also um, it helps you differentiate your brand. So all of those things really back up the need to invest in good emotional experiences.
2: So speaking of designers as founders like at Airbnb and people who can invest in those types of experiences, your book, The Rise of DEO, Leadership by Design, which you co-wrote with uh, Christopher Ireland, is nearly three and a half years old now, Mm -hmm. uh, but it still feels as pertinent as ever.
0: (laughs) It's an oldie but a goodie.
2: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Instant classic, as they call it. Yes,
0: instant classic. Although I do have to say, my husband... He always sends me stuff on leadership, and uh, he, he uh, sent me a link. Uh, Richard Branson, who's, you know, a DEO in his own right, yes. he really is all over about good leadership practices, and he just published his top ten lists of leadership books, and sadly, Rise of the Do was not one of them.
2: <laughs> These things slipped through the cracks. I'm sure it was his, his, his assistant put it together, yes. and yes. He, he may or may not have had a chance to sign off on it.
0: Right, clearly not on his map.
2: Well, if you were um – Let's just say hypothetically then you were going to put out a a second edition to try to get back on his radar. I mean, how has the Rise of the DEO altered the product landscape and the time since you've released that book? And and what might you add to it that uh, you didn't previously in regards to skills the DEOs have or things of that nature?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because when you look at the DEO book, Rise of the DEO, it is not necessarily time sensitive at all. I spent, you know, years of doing research, uh, reading a zillion leadership books, looking at a ton of talks, and trying to identify those patterns that comprise of these special types of leaders. These are special skills that a special set of leaders possess. And so it's, in, in a lot of sense, it's evergreen content, um, because these leadership traits don't really expire. But I will say that Probably over the last couple of years, there's been a couple of traits that make are even more important. I think social intelligence is, is a huge one. Uh, I, I have read some studies recently around the skills that workforces are going to need more of in the future. And social intelligence is a big one because nothing is done in isolation any, anymore. We're increasingly a global society. We have to have empathy across borders. And social intelligence really is uh, a driver for connection and empathy with people. So I'd probably look at that section and really try to beef that up more as a very, very important skill. The other one is systems thinking. Systems thinking, again, as, as systems get increasingly more connected and complex, the need for people to really understand the root causes of systems and how you can solve problems through systems thinking. I think that that is another trait that is becomes more and more important. And of course, I would up the ante on cursing. As I was sharing with you earlier, there are a lot of studies that are showing now. Uh, maybe it's fake news, but I don't think so. I'm going with the <laughs> truth. Do we, do we ever truth. really know anymore? The, <laughs> source, the source of truth. There are studies that talk about how cursing um, increases your social intelligence skills and that uh, intelligent people tend to curse more. So I'm rolling with that theory, and I would uh, feature that front and center in the DEO book.
2: So other than maybe dropping a few more F-bombs here and there in their uh, their presentations, designers who are wanting to inject themselves more into a leadership role, um, particularly younger designers, I mean, there are more and more seats at the table now. What do they need to be working on moving forward?
0: Yeah, I think the whole notion of Rise to the DEO is the DEO, design executive officer, is more of a mindset than it is a position. And there's no such thing as a DEO. There's no, there's no position. Although some people uh, have written me and told me that that's what they're calling themselves, which is so awesome. But it's really about embracing these sort of mindsets to drive change at any point whether you're an intern, whether you're a middle manager, whether you're a designer on a design team. But all of these things you can do wherever you are in, in the process. And that's what the book is really centered around, how you can drive change based on, you know, where you are in the company. And I talked about unionizing and finding like-minded people, making sure that you are empathetic and care about the people, not only the people that you're designing for, but the people that you're working with how to be much more systems oriented, especially if you're on a design team and you're only relegated to solving a very discrete problem. It's really on you to understand how that problem is in context to the larger picture, whether or not you're asked to do so, and you know, not only uh, being highly you know, leveraging your creative skills, but making sure that you also are driven towards craft and flawless execution. you do all those things well, you're going to be emulating what a DEO does.
2: The book is Rise of the DEO, Leadership by Design. You can find it on Amazon. We'll link it up in the show notes. Maria, thanks so much for joining us today. Is there any speaking events where people can catch you in the near future or any places where people could find more of your work?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty much accessible. So you can reach me through all the social networks. I'm going to be in Tel Aviv in March if uh, your audience is interested. I'm speaking at the UXI conference there. And then I'm at the World Usability Conference in Austria later on in 2017. And then there's a bunch of places here and there in between that.
2: Well, thanks again for joining us today.
0: Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom
1: in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out
0: blog.intercom.com.